at the risk of sounding like Camp Captain Obvious, think about today's headlines. Maybe you read today's headlines. I made about ten slides from the past week or so of things in the headlines, and I decided not to include those to, to take too much time just to summarize. But think about what's going on around here that a teacher has to confess to having a high school teacher confesses to having sex with a high school student or another coach somewhere else confesses or is caught with video voyeurism and charged with attempted uh, making child pornography or a farmer who is now being indicted over saying some of his crop was organic and sold it under the guise of being organic and made a lot more money and so he's couple of million dollars into the indictment now, the, the price that they raised falsely by this fraud. And so we look around us and we see attempted murder, we see fraud, we see lies and cheating and fake news and misinformation, disinformation, all kinds of things. And we see on the news and in the newspaper and on 60 Minutes and 48 Hours and things like that, we see sex and greed and murder among the rich people, some of the richest people on the earth. Uh, still have a temptation to have somebody snuffed out or killed. We have the murder among the poor. We have deception and jealousy and strife and envy and pride and all these various heart problems. And the interesting thing to me is that all these people are looking for something, many of them looking for the same sort of things, looking for wealth and fame, looking for a place to belong, looking for status, looking for something, looking for a meaningful life. Uh, the world around us keeps on sending the same message over and over again as young people grow up. And they're getting it at quite a young age. One of the headlines I noticed this week was how a teacher was in trouble among a bunch of parents for feeling the need to ask fifth graders about their sexual activities. And people are getting these messages constantly through all kinds of media. Now, not only do we have that, we have the weaponization of social media. And that's a whole big book that's just been written. So we have all these things going on, and the world keeps on saying, well, now, if you're good-looking enough, you're going to be all right. There will be all kinds of doors open for you. Or if you're rich, have a lot of money, and power, you can have power, you'll have anything you want, you can buy whatever you want or whatever you need. Or if you have athletic prowess, you're going to be all right because all these doors will be open and you can do these great things. Or if you are very talented in some way with singing or music or creating something, building something artistic, then you'll be okay because the world is at your feet. Or if you're really smart, really intellectual, or have a high IQ, then you're going to be okay. And then what are the rest of us supposed to do as we average our way through lives? And you know right now there's a great premium placed on people who grow up and learn a trade and can go out and do and not just program something. And I'm not disparaging programming or apps or code or any of that stuff that's so important in today's world. But somebody's going to have to have a plumber or somebody's going to have to have a carpenter or something someday. And so there's a there's a place for the average. And yet the world keeps on saying over and over again, you got to have a lot of money. you got to have a lot of prestige. you got to have a lot of talent and power to really make it. In fact, uh, there was a couple of young men who were arguing over an inheritance. And one fellow said to Jesus, you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so Jesus then gives this great lesson we know of as the rich fool there in Luke chapter 12. And he describes how the ground of a certain man brought forth plentifully. And he had all these crops and he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and all those things. A lot of great lessons there. But as he summarizes and brings it down to an application... Jesus says, you need to think about not worrying about what you're going to wear and what you're going to put on. And think about the birds. They, they don't have to gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. And consider the lilies of the field. 
They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. It's interesting that Jesus would point back to someone like Solomon to say what all he had is, doesn't even compare to one little flower in God's glory over, over things. And it's interesting because Solomon was involved in God's glory. And Solomon did a lot of study about the meaning of life and about how to find purpose and, and something to do with your life and, and find fulfillment. And so he came to the same conclusion that Jesus did in Luke 12 when Jesus said a man's life, not even when a man has an abundance, not even then, not even when you're wealthy, does a man's life consist in the abundance of his possessions. And yet we just keep on hearing about the lottery, the scholarships, the gambling, the get rich, buy the ticket and all this money will come to you and just all this stuff. And Jesus says, even when you've got it all, the purpose in life doesn't consist in those things that you've gathered together. And you just look at other headlines and other storylines and find how many people are literally miserable when they found out that money didn't fix everything. And so Solomon is going to deal with all this sort of thing, and he comes to the same conclusion that Jesus did centuries before Jesus taught it. So let's look at some of his conclusions. One conclusion is that in all of this business of being smart and rich and powerful and all that, he concluded that the meaning in life is not found in human wisdom or intellectualism. Now, we have a split word here. Wisdom, we think of in terms of understanding and savvy and things like that, and knowledge is something else. But in the Old Testament, wisdom and knowledge are sometimes interchangeable. We'll see that here in just a moment. So the Bible speaks about two kinds of wisdom. And one, of course, is God's wisdom. The other is man's wisdom or man's understanding. In 1 Corinthians 1, all the way through chapter 2, starting in verse 18, through chapter 2 and verse 16, there's a long passage there where Paul describes this wisdom that comes from above. And I just want to read a little section of it. Verse 18, beginning, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased then through the foolishness of the message preached to save those that do believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's just one sampling of how vastly superior God's wisdom is and God's knowledge is beyond man's ability to figure it out for himself. And then James, here in verse 13 through 15 of James 3, talks about man's wisdom. Who among you is wise and understanding? Well, then let him show by his good behavior his deeds, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. See, this is the, this is the flesh and the phrase of the prayer that John prayed. There's a lot of evil out there. We see evil. We see five or six families in the last two years torn apart because of immorality and sexual sin and adultery. And we think these things don't apply to us and that they're not real and they're not valid. There's, there's, 
There's every evil thing and disorder when these things exist. Earthly pride, sensuality, selfish ambition. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So now Solomon is going to deal with this, and he's going to talk about humanity and earthly wisdom as contrasted with God's wisdom. And so in Proverbs 3, Solomon writes, Happy is the man that finds wisdom, talking about the understanding and wisdom that comes from God. And then he talks about man's wisdom or human knowledge and wisdom. But we might ask the question, who is Solomon to write about this and what makes him so smart? We know he was smart, but listen to some of his credentials according to the verses in the Bible. Solomon is known as the wisest man who ever lived other than Christ. And he was educated in the palaces of his father David, which would be second to none of the libraries and the education systems available to man, even beyond the libraries of ancient Egypt. And then not only that, but on top of all that, in 1 Kings 3, we see how God comes to Solomon. He says, I want you to ask of me something. Ask me whatever you will, and I'm going to give it to you. And Solomon says, well, what I want is a wise and understanding heart. I need largeness of heart so that I may know how to go in and out among this great people. And it seems like that sort of impressed God because God's reply was, okay, since you did not ask for yourself great riches and all this money and all these things, then, and you have only asked for wisdom, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you wisdom that's immeasurable, and then on top of that, I'm going to make you all these rich with all these things. And so he endowed Solomon with all these riches and wealth and all this wisdom. And so then he pursued man's wisdom or knowledge with great ability and enthusiasm. And then we see that he says about this, <clears throat> I, the preacher, gave my heart, put everything I had into this. I gave my heart to seek out wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. He was the true Renaissance man. He wanted to learn something about everything and everything about something. And so he wanted to know about the trees and the birds and all these things, and he studied them. And so he wrote what we might call an encyclopedia, or the Bible says he spoke of the hyssop trees and the sycamore trees and all these animals. And it's like he was doing plant taxonomy and all this uh, biology and stuff. And he wrote it all down and explained it. So when Sheba comes and says, what about this? He knew the answer to everything. So he was really smart. He wrote 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. He wrote the Song of Solomon. He wrote Ecclesiastes, Psalm 72, and Psalm 127. And so the Queen of Sheba comes down there, as we read a moment ago, as George read for us in the Scripture reading. When she saw his wisdom and saw all the things that he had, she said, well, I really didn't believe this until I saw it for myself. And you know what? They didn't didn't tell me the half of what's going on and of all your glory. And so all the people and kings of the earth sought Solomon's wisdom. But then as he looks at everything and figures everything out, basically, he's like, well, now what? I've come up empty somehow because what good is it? What is it good? What good does it do to know everything? If you know everything, uh, what does that mean? And so he says, man's wisdom, or he concludes that man's wisdom or intellect apart from God is vanity, and he gives four reasons for this. And one of them is that wisdom cannot change reality. So let's say, for example, there, just for example, I don't know how many stars there are, and you don't either. So let's just say there was a trillion stars, exactly one trillion stars. Okay, if you know that, so what are you going to do about it? There's still a trillion stars, and that's how it is. Okay, so let's say there's a trillion stars, and you don't know that. 
Well, what's going to happen? Well, there's still a trillion stars. And so Solomon says, that which is crooked, it's going to be crooked. It can't be made straight because that's how it is. And that which is straight is not crooked. Or that which is wanting cannot be numbered. So, big deal that you know all these things. What are you going to do about it? What difference does it really make that you know all of that? And not only that, but wisdom or human knowledge can increase sorrow. Chapter 1 and verse 18, in much wisdom is much grief. And so some of the grief that I have, for example, in knowing things, I remember being a young child and not worrying about whether it was going to rain in the future forecast. They couldn't forecast back then as well as they can now, and they got it worse now than they used to have it. But anyway, didn't have to worry about all that. You just go outside, and if it's not raining, then you're okay. Or if it is raining, catch more crappie, whatever. And so now, why is it that I get an email from Caring Hearts Pregnancy Center? Text messages daily come in, prayer chain, have a client here deciding whether to abort. Please pray that she will decide to birth and then either raise the child or adopt the child out. So now that's heavy on my heart. And I'm on the mailing list for St. Jude's Hospital. Gave them a little contribution. Bought a book from, from um, Marlo Thomas. And um, now I'm on their mailing list. And so those little children with cancer and no hair... Three or four lately look exactly like my grandchildren. So that's heavy on my heart. If I wasn't on that mailing list or didn't see a commercial, maybe I wouldn't have to know about that and it wouldn't have to be heavy on my heart. But then you look at all... Listen to the teachers. How heavy is it on our hearts when teachers all over Arkansas report that on Friday afternoon, children, many of them, go home and don't eat again until Monday when they get back to school and get a breakfast. So now that's much sorrow on our hearts because we know all these things. And if we didn't have to pay attention to any of that, didn't see it, didn't know it, it wouldn't matter. And then he says in verse two, uh, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse 14, 15, and 16, how wisdom cannot produce lasting happiness because death comes to the wise and the foolish. So in most of the ways, the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of a pessimistic look at life, like what's, what, why bother? What's it all about anyway? Especially as we look around and things didn't go the way we had them planned for this point in our lives. That just messes up everything. And we always want to seem to blame God with it. But anyway, verse 14, he says, The wise man's eyes are in his head. That is, he knows what's going on. He sees and understands. But the fool walks in darkness. But then he says, so what difference does that make? Because one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. And that storyline has been in poetry and novels throughout history, it seems. But you know, you come to a point when it's like, you know, here's a guy that's, that's just got three or four PhDs and understands all these things and writes all this information and cashes in on the information age and just knows all this stuff and he gets old and he dies. And then here's a guy that lived under a bridge and he dies and they're both dead. So it's like, now what? And what does it matter now if he, if he knew all this stuff or if he didn't know all this stuff? And here's another thing. You can know all this stuff and get all kinds of degrees and all kinds of honors and certificates and all that, and you know all this stuff, and you're talking to somebody, and you tell him, look, I know all this stuff, and here's all your answers, and all he has to do is say, you know, I don't see it that way. So then what's it worth? But I've got all these degrees, and I know all this stuff. And he says, yeah, but I don't see it that way. So what do you do? What is it worth? And so the question comes up, 
Why should I worry about being wise? And then he says in verse, uh, continuing in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he understands that the wise must inevitably relinquish everything that they've accumulated through wisdom. So he says, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Remember the question Jesus asked later? This night shall your soul be required of you, and then who shall these things be? And so Solomon is aggravated, it seems, right here, saying, why would I have to be wise and work hard and do all this and amass all this wealth and then have to die and then leave it behind to somebody else who just gets it handed to them? And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. And so you have... Three quarters of a million dollars in your retirement account that you've paid into for 40 years. You have three life insurance policies. You have a couple of children that are grown and now you're fixing to die. What difference does any of that make? And does that make things worse for the heirs? Are they undeserving heirs? Will they handle it right? Will they get corrupted? Will they fight over it? Will their lives be ruined or will they be fixed for life? How is this going to work? And so Solomon is grieving over this idea. I did all this and I was really wise and smart and I put it together and I have all this stuff. And now I've got to leave it to undeserving heirs, hand it to somebody who didn't work for it, and then see how all this comes out. I don't know if it's worth putting all this effort into it. Maybe that's... Maybe that's the summary on the back of the big motor homes you see sometimes and that has the license plate on the back or the placard that says, we're outspending our children's inheritance. And sometimes I'm like, well, how awful is that? And then I'm like, yeah, that's right. You, you know something somebody else doesn't know. So anyway, meaningful life is not found in human wisdom and human, human intellectualism because when we try to figure it out, we come up with all the wrong answers for the most part. And so then he comes up with another conclusion here. He says that he finds out and understands that a meaningful life is not found in the abundance of your possessions or materialism. And yet people today still repeat Solomon's great experiments. He made for himself wages or allowed himself 666 talents of gold. That's a weight measure. That's a ton. That's a bunch of gold. And silver was so plentiful it was like stones, gravel around around the place. And so after he had all this money and the Queen of Sheba brought him the biggest gift he had ever received, then he says, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's almost like a spoiled child or, a, or something. It's like if you can do anything you want, you can go to any island you want. Well, I'll go to all of them. Well, you can go to any beach you want to go to. Well, I'll go to all of them. Well, you can go to any restaurant you want to go to. Well, I'll go to all of them. Well, I, you can have any woman you want. Well, I'll have all of them. Well, I won't. And pretty soon you're like, I don't even think I want anything anymore. I mean, what's the deal here? And that's kind of how Solomon did things. And so he says, there's no profit under the sun. Chapter 2 and verse 11. And he says, he that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. What if another queen came to see him the next week and gave him only half of what Sheba gave him? How would he feel? Would you like, well, you shortchanged me. The Sheba gave me way more than this. Or what about, you know, the, uh, the guy that wants a private plane? So he gets a private plane and the friends he hangs around with now, I've got a private jet. So he really doesn't hang around with them. Well, then the other guys that the private jet owner hangs around with has a fleet of them, and so he still feels poor. 
And so we have what we call, maybe closer to home, two-foot-itis, where you get your 12-foot boat, you get out in it, and you're like, good grief, I need 14 or 16 feet, and so we call it two-foot-itis. And once you get started in the boat stuff, you need more boat stuff and bigger boat stuff so you can do more boat stuff. And so if you want silver and start getting it, then it's like, well, if I can invest this and get half a million, then why didn't I do it this other way and get three-quarters of a million? So it's like you're not satisfied. If that's what you're after, you seemingly won't get enough. And so he concludes in chapter 5 and verse 13 that hoarded riches are evil. Ecclesiastes 5:19 and 6 and verse 2 speak of having health and the power to enjoy what you possess. And that's one that really, to me, strikes close to home. I've known people, and not just necessarily in this congregation, but friends and neighbors and acquaintances and relatives. Work all their life, get everything in order, and about a month before they retire and start to travel and do all the stuff they plan to do, they have a stroke. Or something else happens, and everything changes around, and suddenly all the priorities we thought were priorities don't even amount to anything. And then you watch somebody looking at death in a few weeks or a few months, cleaning out things and giving things away. It's like, what does that feel like to have all this stuff and all your favorite things and all the family portraits and all that and just say, well, I don't need, I don't need any of this. Uh, in fact, it hurts to even keep some of it for the next few weeks. It's like, what, what is life all about? What does it even matter? And so there's this idea of being filled with money and property and being healthy enough to do anything with it or to enjoy it. Or to have all this and sit there and be sick and can't do anything. Is that some kind of misery? So it's like eating biscuits and gravy, trying to make it come out where your last bite of biscuit has a big slop of gravy on it. And that's your last bite instead of having more gravy on the plate or more biscuits that are now dry. And so how do you make it come out right? <clears throat> so he says, the only, the, the only wealth, that we, and we learn from all this in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, Paul describes there the unsearchable riches of Christ because that's food for the soul and that feeds something that these other things cannot feed. Nothing that's, that's kept in barns can feed our souls. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and, and Paul's letter to Timothy, he says you need to warn people who are rich to be careful because what they'll do is they'll start thinking they did it themselves and they'll start thinking they can handle anything because they've got enough money to handle it. And he said, that's not how it really works in every case. So he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that life which is life indeed. And so how uncertain are riches? All we have to do is, again is look around at the headlines. We see somebody does something sudden or a drought happens or a flood happens and the market prices change and all of your investments now are reversed. I knew some people back, um, I forgot what year it was and what the event was, but something happened in the stock market and a bunch of teachers lost all their retirement. Nearly all of it were wiped out, but it regained. Once they reinvested and got it all back on track, they got their stuff back reinstated. Some of them were basically scared, having been wiped out. And this can happen overnight. A war breaks out. It changes the price of copper or the price of something you have invested in. Or maybe there's a germ out there. We've pretty well conquered tuberculosis, and yet in the rest of the world, it's still one of the main killers out there. It's a communicable disease. It's terrible. It's, it's out there. So we have a pandemic. Pandemics have killed more people. And a mosquito can start something like that. And so here, all the things that we see and think this is how it is may not be that way tomorrow. Maybe the earth starts shaking. What happens then? 
And then we have a fire or flood or storm or volcano or all of the above. And these things just happen all around us. And it ought to be driving us, by the way, and it does, I think, to thank God for breathable air or drinkable water or even having water and things like that. So we understand then in the big scheme of things, money can buy a bed but can't buy rest. It can buy food but not strength. Money can buy medicine but not health. Money can buy a house but not a home. The final thing, and I'm almost done here. I'm going to land this plane. A third thing that Solomon discovered and concluded was that a meaningful life is not found in physical pleasure. And that's another thing that seems to be on the horizon and on the radar for people with lots of money and lots of time on their hands. Then they start seeking some of this, too. And not necessarily that way. Poor people do this, too. But in his frantic search for happiness, the wise man, it seems, became a fool. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will prove thee with mirth. I said to my heart, I'm going to live it up. You talk about party. He did it every day. This was daily, the way he lived. Daily his table overflowed with delicacies. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And as one fellow once said, Solomon was really one fellow who could truly say to his wife, Honey, you're one in a thousand. Um, So anyway, he did that and he had music and friends and wine every day. And in chapter 10 or verse 10, he summarized and said, Whatever my eyes desired. I want some of that. I want this. I want y'all. I want this. And I'll just take it all. I'll just have everything. Just give it to me. And so... In verse 3 and 4 of 1 Kings 11, we read that his wives led away his heart from serving the living God. And he began to serve their gods and the Ashtaroth and the, all the, the things of, the, of this world and the Canaanites and those around, all around. And so he got into trouble with God. And God said, now I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, but I'm going to not do it in your lifetime for the sake of your father David. But now in your son's life and so forth, it's all going to happen. And you can read the, the rest of that story. So it's interesting. Here's a man who had everything, saw everything, did everything, felt everything, understood everything, told everybody everything, and then he turns away from God. Did you see the thing in the paper, the the paper this week, about Einstein's letter that's going to sell for a million dollars? And Einstein was raised as a Jew in the Jewish religion. He used to sing praises to God and belt out hymns to God while he was walking to high school. But then he got interested in higher math and physics, and he... He thought, well, this is a trick. I've been tricked in all this religion stuff. It's a fairy tale and it's not even true. But he was torn. He never did really just renounce God and become an atheist. He thought there's got to be something to this universe and all these physics and all these laws that something's going on here. So he still had this reverence and awe for the creation and maybe the creator. But anyway, he had given up on his religion. Interestingly, how then all these things don't seem to work that we try so hard to fulfill ourselves with. And so the reason that sensuality is vain and striving after the wind is that a life of indulgence does not deliver what it promises. As with silver, when you want some of that and get some and then you want more and you just keep wanting more or the two-foot-itis thing. In the same way with the sensualism of the flesh. I think it's fun. I don't know why, because it's sort of morbid in a way. But look at uh, look at all the the starlets and the hot singers and dancers and movie stars and our people we had crushes on as kids. Look at them, look them up on IMDb or something, and do a search and see what they look like today. And uh, they look like prunes, <laughs> like we're all going to look like someday if we live that long. And so the flesh does not deliver what it promises. It seems like it's fun for a while, but then when you mix in with that, you've got the human heart and you've got jealousy and strife and envy and all those things that just tear things apart. And so the philosophy of sensualism also ignores the reality of the weaknesses of the flesh. 
The flesh is like grass and it will wither and fade away. Our lives are just like a vapor. And then finally, he concludes, or we conclude from this, that sensualism does not take into account a God that takes everything into account. So Solomon says in chapter 12, as he's kind of winding all this down, and he says, okay, young man, you need to live it up and have a good time while you're young. I mean, there's coming a time when it takes you longer to rest than it does to get tired, when you can't pass a rocking chair without sitting in it, even at a store or something like that. That's why they got them out at the front at the Cracker Barrel, I guess. But anyway, there's coming a time. So live it up while you're young and enjoy life. But know this, he says, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And so it's not that God is out to get you and ruin you and catch you in a fault and send you to hell so you can't be saved. That's not the point. The point is, for all these things that you're doing, realize that you're doing it under the sun, under the God who created the sun, that all these things are being taken into account by God. So then, what does life consist about? What's the meaning of life? Where is the meaning of life? And Solomon's whole conclusion, his overall final bottom line was, here's your takeaway, he says, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In the English text, the word duty has been added to sort of give it some depth of meaning, and yet... It really sort of took away from it because in the original text it simply says this is man or this is the whole of man. It means that what, what man is all about is how it started. God placed man in the garden, gave him everything that there is and said it's all yours except for that. And the test was do you believe me? Do you trust me? Do you fear me? Will you obey me? And that was the big test. And you know they failed that test. Now, here's Solomon with all this stuff and says, we got all this and figured all this out, but what really counts is, do you believe in God? Do you trust God? Will you obey God? That's what you need to do. Now, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he summarizes all that up. He talks to these two boys about their inheritance. He says, I'll tell you what really counts is believing in God and trusting in God. Because even Solomon and all the things he had, he wasn't arrayed like one of the little flowers that God made. And God will so much more take care of you, oh, you of little faith. So it's no wonder then Proverbs and all of his wisdom and Solomon writes that you need to guard your heart. And the heart heart is deceitful above all. It's desperately wicked. So we need to guard our hearts. And then Jesus would say as he summarized all this, what's going on with the teacher having sex with the student? What's going on with the fifth grader? What's going on with the voyeurism? What's going on with the fraud and all that stuff? Jesus says, out of the heart are the issues of life. For out of the heart proceed adulteries, murders, and things like that. So it's no wonder that Jesus and Solomon and all these wise people would come down to the same thing. That if you're really looking for something to fulfill your life, put every marble in the same bag. Put it all in God. We've been studying a series on faith that will continue next week. You get to the end of the book of Hebrews and you have a summary of all these people in the Old Testament. All these characters that lived and walked by faith. And so he spells out, and the Hebrew writer spells out for us name by name. Look at what they did. Look at how they lived. And that's what Paul said to Timothy. You warn these people to show by their good lives and their good works what they really believe in. And so as we think about the call from heaven, all God has been looking for all along is for mankind to come back to him. He sent Jesus into the world to the world to say, this is the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Paul explains that if we've been buried with him in the likeness of his death in baptism, we will be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And so the call comes out, are you washed in the blood of Christ? Do you put all your trust in Jesus? Do you you put your faith in him? Are you willing to trust him and obey him? He gave everything for us. In fact, when he went to the cross and he gets to the point when he says that it's finished, 
He was literally saying everything Solomon said, everything Adam and Eve learned, everything the prophets prophesied, and everything I've taught you and shown you in my life is now sealed and delivered, and I'm laying it on the line for you. What would you give for me? Would you give your life to Jesus this morning as we stand together and as we sing this song?